0: Hello, and welcome to Trail Mix. I'm Mike. And I'm Dusty. November is Native American Heritage Month. Native American Heritage Month is something that is celebrated by the Library of Congress, the National Archives and Records Administration, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the National Gallery, the National Park Service, the Smithsonian Institute of the United States, the Holocaust Memorial, and other organizations as well. Native American Heritage Month is something that actually originated as a day. It's also commonly referred to as American Indian and Alaska Native Heritage Month. The month is a time for us to celebrate the rich and diverse cultures, traditions, and histories, and to acknowledge the important contributions of Native peoples. It's also a great time to educate the general public about tribes, to raise general awareness about the unique challenges Native peoples have both faced historically and in the present. NCAI,
1: or the National Congress of American Indians,
0: in the D.C. National Public Relations Roundtable is a group that consists of public relations professionals from National American, Indian, and Alaska Native organizations and agencies in the D.C. area. The group meets monthly to improve communications between groups, and its primary function has been to create a more cohesive campaign for Native American Heritage Month and to unify the month's schedule
1: of events. All of this information that we are bringing to you about Native American Heritage Month is from NCAI.org and from Native American Heritage Month.gov.
0: Originally, the proponents of the American Indian Day, as it was once known, was Dr. Arthur C. Parker. He was a Seneca Indian, and he was the director of the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Rochester, New York. He persuaded the Boy Scouts of America to set aside a day for the first Americans, and for three years they adopted such a day. In 1915, the annual Congress of American Indians Association, which met in Lawrence, Kansas, formally approved a plan concerning American Indian Day. Eventually what happened is a proclamation was issued by the president of the American Indian Association, whose name is Sherman Coolidge, and he was an Arapaho native, called the country to observe such a day. Um, he issued that proclamation on September 28th in 1915, which declared the second Saturday of each May as American Indian Day and contained the first formal appeal for recognition Of Indians as citizens. The year before, Red Fox James, who was a Blackfoot Indian, rode horseback state to state seeking approval for the day to honor Indians. On December 14, 1915, he presented endorsements of the 24 state governments to the White House. There is no record of such a national day, however, being proclaimed. The first American Indian Day in the state was declared on the second Saturday in May, 1916, by the governor of New York. Several states celebrated the fourth Friday in September. In Illinois, For example, legislators enacted a day in 1919, and several states presently have designated Columbus Day as National American Day, but continues to be a day we observe without any recognition as being a national legal holiday. In 1990, President George H.W. Bush approved a joint resolution designating November as National American Indian Heritage Month. Ever since then, we've had that proclamation issued um, since 1994
1: as a way to acknowledge the Native people who uh, lived on, worked on, farmed, and cared for the lands that are now national parks. Anytime we uh, hike a trail in a national park, we always end the episode with a land acknowledgement. This land acknowledgement is a call from the United States Department of Arts and Culture. This is what they have to say on their website, usdac.us, about what is a native land acknowledgement. We call on individuals and organizations to open public events and gatherings with acknowledgement of the traditional native inhabitants of the land. Acknowledgement is a simple, powerful way of showing respect and a step toward correcting the stories and practices that erase indigenous people's history and culture toward inviting and honoring the truth. Imagine this practice widely adopted. Imagine cultural venues, classrooms, conference settings, places of worship, sports stadiums, and town halls acknowledging traditional lands. Millions would be exposed many for the first time, to the names of the traditional indigenous inhabitants of the lands they are on, inspiring them to ongoing awareness and action. For more than 500 years, Native communities across the Americas have demonstrated resilience and resistance in the face of violent efforts to separate them from their land, culture, and each other. They remain at the forefront of movements to protect Mother Earth and the life it sustains. Today, corporate greed and federal policy push agendas to extract wealth from the earth, degrading sacred land in blatant disregard of treaty rights. Acknowledgement is a critical public intervention, a necessary step toward honoring Native communities and enacting the much larger project of decolonization and reconciliation. Join us in adopting, calling for, and spreading this practice. We are people who practice this. Another way you can personally get involved is on usdac.us. There is an entire guide that you can download about the ways that you can incorporate this into your daily practice in public life. It's a great resource. It's what we looked into. And they have drafted language to help you publicly acknowledge them in various settings. Right, And so we totally advocate for that. On a recent trip to Shenandoah
0: National Park, we had planned to spend some time in Washington, D.C. And along with seeing the National Mall and the monuments there, the one museum that we had planned to see and were really excited for, along with the rest of the monuments that we were seeing in D.C. on this visit, was the National Museum of the American Indian. Um, Before we get there uh, specifically, let's talk a little bit about the Smithsonian um, museum structure and what that is like on the National Mall.
1: We also saw the, um, the Botanical Gardens because you're a Libra and you love your Botanical Gardens. I do, and you were excited to see them too. I loved them.
0: Yeah. So the Smithsonian Institute is a large spanning institute that basically encompasses most of the museums that are on the National Mall. It was established with funds from James Smith's Um, who was a british scientist who left his estate to the united states to found at washington under the name of smithsonian institute an establishment for the increase and diffusion of knowledge on august 10th 1846 the u.s senate passed the act organizing the smithsonian institute which was signed into law by president james k polk this information is from um, the smithsonian institute website while Congress authorized the acceptance of the Smithson bequest on July 1st, 1836, it took another 10 years of debate before the Smithsonian was founded. Once established, it became part of the process of developing an American national identity, an identity that was rooted in the exploration, innovation of a unique American style. This process continues today as the Smithsonian looks forward towards the future. The Smithsonian has a number of museums, that are underneath its umbrella.
1: The Smithsonian includes 19 museums, 17 of which are in DC. The ones in DC include the National Museum of African American History and Culture, the National Museum of African Art, the National Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the National Museum of American History, the National Museum of the American Indian, Anacostia Community Museum, the Arts and Industries Building, the Air Gallery of Art, the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, the National Museum of Natural History, the National Portrait Gallery, the National Postal Museum, the Renwick Gallery of Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Arthur M. Sackler Gallery, and the Smithsonian Institution Building. So which of those museums have you been to? I have been to the American History Museum mm-hmm. and the Air and Space Museum. Okay. And I really liked those. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I've been to Aaron Space, the Hirshhorn, and I believe also the Renwick Gallery and the Smithsonian American Art Museum. I've never been into the castle, but we've I I've passed it either. by a yeah. bunch. Yeah. And I can't believe I actually have never been to the natural history museum there. No, I've not
1: been there either. Yeah. I have been to the Holocaust Museum. Right, but that's not a Smithsonian which is operated not property. Smithsonian. No. Right. But no, I've been to that museum a number of times. And that's,
0: like, you got to spend the whole day in there and, like, just, like, prepare yourself. It's so
1: worth it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I would... Really like to see the Museum of African American History and Culture. Oh,
1: my God. You and everyone else. Right. It's really hard to get 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 tickets tickets. right now. It's
0: free, but you have to, like, it's ticketed um, because it's very, very popular. And the design of the building is really, really interesting. Just like the design of the Museum of the American Indian, which is where we spent most of our time. Besides the Museum of the African American History and Culture, are there any other museums that you're kind of dying to get into in D.C.? Well,
1: all those art museums, I would love to see. I haven't gone oh, to yeah, any the of Oh, yeah, the National them. Gallery is great. Yeah, to, me too. Also the, not a part of Smithsonian, but... Right. Yeah. In addition to the um, African American History and Culture Museum, mm-hmm. I'm also dying to do the Museum of African Art. Yeah, yeah. I think also
0: the Portrait Gallery would be a lot of fun. Yes. I remember when Stephen Colbert had his portrait. I think it's still... Up, and Really? Yes. I know there was like the last time I was in D.C., which was a few years ago, doing museums. There was like a big line to see his portrait because it was like a very, you know, Colbert-esque portrait. Right. I believe it was like him in and, and multiple frames just like going back. We've got to look that up.
1: It's a good oh. one to see. And we can also see Olivia Pope.
0: Oh, well, it's handled.
1: It's handled. It's handled. now. Um, um, that's how Scandal ended. I don't know if you remember that, but at Olivia, the National Portrait Gallery, Olivia Pope has a photograph or has a portrait in the <laughs> National Portrait Gallery, and you don't know why. And it's, it's all speculative as to why it is oh, she had
0: one. Yeah, I didn't know. It was <laughs> it was never that good, and it's falling apart just like <laughs> Scandal. <laughs> um, That's a line from Difficult People. It's true. It's true. So let's talk a little bit about the National Museum of the American Indian. It's definitely a museum that the both of us were really excited to get to. It is towards the end of the mall. It's much closer to the um, Capitol Building and the Botanical Gardens, which is why we stopped there, to kind of also give us some time to immerse in an outdoor space before going inside, but also to kind of set the scene and set the stage for us, I think, in that
1: natural sort
0: of surrounding. The building itself has an incredible architecture.
1: The current museum of the American Indian opened on September 21st, 2004 in the national mall. The design for this building came from a collaborative program known as the way of the people. And it is a program that is between native American communities and architectural consultants, Venturi, Scott Brown and associates. The shape of this building was made to, um, the curvature in the exterior wanted to reflect natural spiral shapes and, um, they are facing the four cardinal directions.
0: Which is often such an important aspect of Native American culture and mythology, the four directions. The four so directions. that makes a lot of sense too. Right.
1: The curved line form in the side of the building is supposed to evoke wind sculpted rock formations. And that is why it is all over each side of every mm. single building.
0: Yeah, I think it, remi- it was very reminiscent for me walking up to it to like walking through a canyon or like yes. even Bryce with like the hoodoos and how... Those were shaped by the wind and the differences right. in the canyon walls. So it does definitely evoke that natural landscaping, which I think is pivotal as far as like the architecture of the building being evocative of... The mission and the, the contents held within, um, right. especially in this setting of a museum that's dedicated to the first people um, and the people that really lived off the land, cultivated the land, and were nourished by the land. I think this pays great homage to them in its construction and its design. The
1: um, building is perfectly aligned to the four cardinal directions, and the center point of the U.S. Capitol Building Dome, and it is filled with details, colors, and textures that reflect the Native universe. Today, the National Museum of the American Indian works in collaboration with the Native peoples, specifically of the Western Hemisphere, to protect and foster their cultures by reaffirming traditions and beliefs, encouraging contemporary artistic expression, and empowering Native American voices. And all of this is coming directly from the Smithsonian website and the page on the Museum of the American Indian. So the collection
0: of the National Museum of the American Indian actually started with one man, um, George Gustav Hay, um, and his first acquisition was in eighteen ninety seven. It was the purchase of a Navajo hide shirt in Arizona. Eventually, Hay began to collect very aggressively artifacts pertaining to the first peoples of the Americas. This included research and expedition trips to Latin America, which predated the American Anthropological Association's 1907 identification of the region as a priority for Um, research, investigation, and archaeological development, George Gustav Hay, eventually started the Museum of the American Indian. And this museum was in New York City. He, with the help of generous supporters and philanthropists, some of whom included family members, was able to open and staff the museum after he filled his apartment and also a nearby warehouse. He also was able to exhibit at the University of Pennsylvania's University Museum. Eventually what happens is he, after being made the director for life, in 1957 he dies. Eventually new directors came to the museum which worked to acquire significant materials and represented the blending of native and non-native worlds including works that were made for sale but still represented the traditional cultural values of Native peoples. After some time, the museum eventually transfers, in 1989, its collections holdings to the Smithsonian Institute, um, which started the creation of the National Museum of the American Indian as it is built today.
1: On the top floor of the Museum of the American Indian is an exhibit called, Our Universe, Traditional Knowledge Shapes Our World. This is like a half-circular room, and to the right are Various mythological stories from various Native American mythologies. I work with a lot of these stories when I work with students um, who are studying Native American mythology in their curriculum. And so, like, there were so many of them that were familiar to me, like in this moment, like the story of the raven, the story of the seven brothers, all of these various stories that sometimes share features and sometimes don't. Now, over to the left, is all of these other exhibits that you go inside of, and it's like all these tiny little curves and rooms, and sometimes they're connected and sometimes they're not, and each one represents a different Native American tribe from North America. And for this museum, each one of those tribes was able to curate the exhibit themselves so that they could say exactly what they wanted in it, what they wanted it to say, and how it was presented. Um, One thing that I thought was really neat because I'm mythology geek is how well everything
0: was presented and also what they did with not only Native American tribes of North America, but also those of Central and South America were represented here. Um, The exhibit space also leads you to the main exhibit hall, that crescent shape leads you to believe that you're outside because the ceiling looks like a field of stars um, with constellations. They also have the walls are cut to look like mesas and plateaus and things that you would see in the American Southwest. So the design of the exhibit space, which is dark when you first walk in, and then when you walk into those separate enclaves, gives you more of a feel for that specific region um, based off of the items, like Dusty said, were curated specifically by that that tribe. Um, so it gives you more of a specific feel for their culture, their mythology, and what their belief systems were. In the Nation to Nation exhibit, which is also on the top floor, it deals with treaties between American Indian nations and the U.S. This was a really pivotal part of the United States history and really, an important way for Americans and first European settlers to survive, based off of the treaties that they made with the native americans that didn't always work out in the favor for the native americans as we know you get to learn a lot about the different perspectives each of the rooms that this exhibit was made up of had a lot of like here's the perspective of the europeans here's the perspective of the native americans like what did religion mean to europeans what did religion mean to the native americans so it really gave that sort of split perspective to understand a little bit better where these treaties were being born from and how each of these cultures operated kind of um, adjacent to one another and sometimes overlapping. I really appreciate that. It was that, a that. deep dive into that history, which kind of came back later to as we were exploring more of the exhibit spaces when we specifically zoned in on one such treaty. Another exhibit that we walked through pretty quickly, only because our time was short, um, was the Great Inca Road which is really interesting. And I wish I had a little bit more time to spend in there, um, having been to South America and having been to Peru and knowing a little bit about the Inca Road and knowing about Machu Picchu. But it talked a lot about the native peoples of South America, which I thought was so great that it wasn't... I I love that that there was that inclusivity there, um, that it wasn't just North American uh, peoples represented it was the American Indian as it is from North and South America and Central um, so it was really great to see that as a representation within the museum too and it is an exhibit that I would love to go back and just kind of like meander a little more through the one exhibit that we really spent the most of our time in which was a really great designed exhibit like incredibly designed like the graphic designer, the you know, the curator did an impeccable the job. The curation of the information yeah. was so clear. Was called Americans, um, and Americans was on the levels below the um, third floor, the third floor, and this exhibit, when you walk into it, is a giant like atrium that has images like an actual facsimiles or actual objects and facsimiles of objects that depict Native Americans in um, advertising, in movie posters, in all sorts of things. It is this kind of overload of information and this fascination that America had, that white America had with Native Americans as a symbol. It really speaks to and investigates why this symbol of a Native American was used repeatedly over and over again. They also, on the back wall, have movies playing and cartoons playing that feature people that are either dressed as Native peoples, cartoons that are depicting Native peoples, um, to kind of further show this uh, exploitation
1: of Native Americans in American culture. One of the purposes for this exhibit called Americans that I gleaned was that it's trying to correct the narrative that has been told for far too long in this country, the one that is often written about in textbooks, which is this sort of the white European settler coming over looking for a new world and wanting to create something that has never been made before. But because like it was ordained by God for them to like find it, like it was just so necessary for us to help Move these native people to another place so that we could share this land together. Right, which is the soft, inaccurate narrative that is just like shoved down the throats of us. And it was in my elementary yeah. school. Yeah, it's so, the like, old right gentrification. Left, the old gentrification. Yeah, seriously. You know? So they don't mince words in this. No. Um in there's nothing soft about this exhibit no it really and is i the facts. so appreciate it and, it's, and even for the person that is like extremely educated about all of this i promise you you will still learn something right
0: here. so there are off of this main atrium there are three galleries basically that further delve into these corrected mythologies about
1: The Native American and their history. And the narrative. And frankly, by going directly into these three specific areas that we are so deeply familiar with, it begins the undoing of the general narrative. Right. Um,
0: So the first room that we went into was about Um, the Battle of Little Bighorn, and this was a crushing defeat for General Custer. The defeat comes at the centennial of the country in 1876, and it was a big shocking defeat for the United States um, that Custer and 200 of his men were defeated by Native Americans Um, was it sent shockwaves. The exhibit describes it as shocking as the JFK assassination a whole century later. The Lakota and the Northern Cheyenne who won the battle basically became these gigantic celebrities after the battle. Unfortunately, what ends up happening, though, is that the battle is won, but the war is lost for the Native peoples. As much as they are these celebrities and the battle itself is sensationalized over and over again through Buffalo Bill Wild West stage shows and different copycat versions of reenactments, it really does show the cost of what westward expansion was for Native Americans and how the West was won and what that cost became for Native peoples, which was life on reservations and a complete and utter change to their way of
1: life and how it had been lived up until that point. There is also a section on the Indian Removal Act. Now, the Indian Removal Act, a stain on our American uh, history, it was the thing that was signed into law by Andrew Jackson. And there were proponents on both sides At this time, people were arguing, like, we just founded a country that says technically all men are created equal, even though at the time, men, women, African American people were not equal at this time by any any means. But when it came specifically to Native American people, there were proponents on both sides saying, like, well, there's all this land that we would like to incorporate into our country, but we can't own that land if these people are here. And then on the other side, it's like, well, we can't ask them to leave because that would go against the ideals of the country that we're building. So essentially, America was faced with this moral test. Can we become the economic superpower that we potentially could be? And can we also stick to the ideals that we are founded upon? And um, unfortunately, America only succeeded at one, which is becoming an economic superpower. Right. So the Indian Removal Act was specifically about the South. It wanted to remove some of the biggest tribes from the South, including Seminole, Muskegee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Cherokee And correct me tribes. if I'm wrong, I'm
0: pretty sure it was because there was mining in the area. They oh, wanted to mine the area. it was the called area. the Black Belt yeah. because of the amount of oil that right. was there.
1: Also, the amount of cotton production that right. was potentially there, yeah. too. Then there was this whole part about, like, well, if we do... Sign a law that forces Them to leave we need to clothe them And feed them and give them land And that was like the whole thing Like the whole intention was to just literally Like there's all this open Land on the other side of The this country or this area Of land and um, we're Going to kindly ask them to move Slash I'm we're going To forcibly remove them But give them provisions along the way Now the That was the intention but um, it was a total mess the whole time, and it was horrifying the entire time. Just to give you some of the um, numbers here, um, in the Seminole tribe, 3,000 people were removed, and on their, on, during removal, 700 died. Of the Muskegee tribe, 23,000 were removed, and 3,500 died during the removal, of the Choctaw uh, tribe, 20,000 were removed and 4,000 people died. Jesus. Chickasaw tribe, 5,600 people were removed, 800 people died. And of the Cherokee tribe, 16,000 people were removed and two to 4,000 people died. So, it is a very bloody stain on American history. Um, among others. But among this others. This is um, a pretty bad one. Is this is a pretty bad one. Yeah. And... Um, Following the removal of this, America did become an economic superpower because of mining and cotton production. Right. It just underscores the racism and the greed
0: that so much of the nation was unfortunately built upon. This is
1: directly from the wall of this exhibit. Removal was at the center of an astonishing chapter in American history. It is not just a tragic story about American Indians victimized by a cruel president. Today, we remember removal as a betrayal of American values. We should also remember that it was thoughtfully debated by the most democratic country on earth, supported by both political parties and broadly popular. The human cost was enormous, catastrophe for Indian nations, and a population of enslaved labor that reached $4 The contradictions became untenable and they would lead directly to the country's devastating civil war.
0: So the last exhibit that was a part of this space was about the queen of America, who the exhibit referred to as Pocahontas um, and the cult of Pocahontas, basically.
1: And as we know, one of the greatest places to go to learn about Pocahontas is the Disney film, right? Uh, Incorrect. (laughs)
0: Um, So the... Disney film has several inaccuracies, specifically. Several. 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 Specifically, the love affair between John Smith and Pocahontas, which is, you know, not really a thing. Um, but we learn a little bit more about um, Virginia, the start of the country, and, you know, how Pocahontas interceded to save John Smith. Um, and to ensure that this cult of Pocahontas could continue um, because of her actions, um, which was not her intention. Her intention was to do a good deed. This exhibit really does do a deep dive into Pocahontas and how she became this cultural symbol um, and, you know, what was correct and what was inaccurate about her story. So um, basically she was the savior of Virginia and the colony there. Um, she was a frequent visitor to James Fort, um, and when there, when the fort and the people there were out of food and starving, she brought food. Um, her eventual marriage to John Rolfe forged an alliance between the English and the Powhatan Confederacy, which Powhatan was uh, Pocahontas's father, um, and it, it led to a break in warfare between competing powers. It also ended up giving um, a strong trade for tobacco, um, which was uh, basically cash crop for the people of Virginia. Um, And it opened that cash crop up to make oodles of cash um, for those people. So that was an important kind of trade that was happening in the eventual marriage between Pocahontas and John Rolfe. It really opened up those supply lines of tobacco. Virginia became one of the wealthiest and most important states in the young nation because of this. In regards to John Smith and the story of Pocahontas, many historians actually doubt that those events took place the way they did. John Smith was known to um, embellish his stories a lot. He often published exaggerated accounts of his world travels. And even in his own time, many were suspicious of his tales. This tale of his rescue and this love affair have a tremendous staying power. But it wasn't John Smith that married Pocahontas. It was John Rolfe, as we know from history. Pocahontas, aside from this story of the rescue of John Smith, Was at the court of Elizabeth. John Rolfe did bring her there. She did bear a son. He was raised in England and he returned to Virginia as a young man. And for 400 years, there were many elite Virginians, including some of the nation's founding fathers, who claimed to have the blood of Pocahontas within them. There were so many important Virginians that claimed, you know, their heritage came and stemmed from Pocahontas. But Virginia was also a state that was writing some of the most serious racial purity laws that basically restricted people that even had an ounce of native or non-white blood from being considered to be white individuals. Um, There was a workaround for that. So in 1924, Virginia debated the Racial Integrity Act. The law required all Virginians to be identified as either white or colored. It defined as white a person who had no trace whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian It also legislated Indians out of existence since it eliminated the category, which is incredible. If the act passed without revision, Virginia elites who claimed to be descendants of Pocahontas would be stripped of their rights that white people enjoyed. And this is directly from the exhibit. Functionally, African-Americans, they would live under harsher conditions of the harsh conditions of legal segregation. Um, But that's okay, because at the last minute a solution was found, when the act was passed it included a provision, those with one one one-sixteenth of Indian blood would be classified as white, now known as the Pocahontas exception. Um, It's a clause that catered to families who descended from Pocahontas and John Rolfe, and it permitted aristocratic Virginians um, to have it both ways. They got to have their cake and eat it too, Um, which just goes to show you the extraordinary lengths of white society to bend the knee to those that are elite and powerful. This really was a fascinating exhibit to just learn a little bit more about the history of Pocahontas. I think this is one that I feel like is expressed a little bit more um, and a little bit more um, delved into than just the cursory like explanation of John Smith and Pocahontas. I do remember learning about John Rolfe and, and that marriage um, and talking about that. And I guess Disney tried to correct that with pocahontas 2 because i'm pretty sure um, that i didn't the... even
1: see pocahontas 2 also <laughs> pocahontas 2 was straight to video that's right so like how is that equitable i don't know i'm just saying i, I think they tried to do something i don't know that disney really ever tries to correct itself yeah because they're in the they're the corporate they're machine. infallible
0: um but it was a great exhibit to to get to learn a little bit more about that Um, history there was a part where they filmed a bunch of people and they asked what did you know about Pocahontas or what do you think of when Pocahontas comes to mind and a lot of people said the Disney movie or John Smith those were like the initial responses which just goes to show you what a lot of this exhibit is trying to purport is that so much of our history is ingrained in us at a young age and it's not necessarily the most correct history and
1: that's just perpetuated throughout time and the power of media yeah and the power of narrative spinning. Let's end this trail mix with the game. What have you got prepared for us today, Mike? I have some trivia for you, Dusty. Okay, i ready. And
0: in this trivia, we're calling this game... It's 2019. How is this still a thing? Great. Um, this is all about the use of Native American imagery in advertising, television, and film. Um, okay. So, five clues similar to our Jeopardy style games. Great. Are I'm you ready? ready. Um, while the United States was once characterized as a native princess or queen during its early rise, eventually Lady Liberty and Uncle Sam took her place as the default mascots of the country. That, however, did not stop this company from depicting the native princess of yesteryear from holding a platter of its product on their advertising. How self-referential of this favorite foodstuff of Paula Dean.
1: Oh, Landaleaks butter—that's
0: correct. <gasps> She's still there. She's still
1: there. She is still there. She's there, there, proudly holding I that Landaleaks too. Yeah. yeah, I haven't even thought about that. Get yourself some new I'm butter. Saying, the normalized. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, great. The normalized <laughs> exploitation. Right.
0: It's 2019. How is this still a thing? Seriously. A statue of proud native chief was once the advertising mascot for tobacconist world over. Because much of the early population of the U.S. was illiterate, symbols were often used to help people denote the correct store. Because the Native Americans had introduced tobacco to the European settlers, it was the point. This was the point of connection. Um, while it's not often that you still find a tobacco store Native American, you can still find imagery on this brand of cigarettes
1: you might find in the store, or you might find in my car. Two years ago. Mm -hmm. What is American spirit? That's correct. Also featuring the image of a Native American. Also featuring the image of the Native American.
0: It's 2019. How Mm -hmm. is this still a thing? Since the 1870s, Native American imagery has been used as actual mascots for sports teams, both professional, college, and high school. While many of these teams have slowly retired these images, some professional sports teams retain the name, even if the mascot or icon has evolved. Most famously, the Washington Redskins came under m- more fire than usual when in 2013 a symposium at the national museum of the native american called for a name change reached calls for a name change reached a fever pitch speaking of pitching name two mlb teams whose icon or mascot relates to native
1: peoples okay uh the atlanta braves that's correct um is it the oakland a's it's not the oakland Are A's. They, hold on um
0: hmm there was a movie with charlie sheen about this team and wesley oh. Snipes.
1: oh right major league mm-hmm. right i don't remember the cleveland indians oh the cleveland indians yeah. so the okay. atlanta
0: braves and the cleveland indians are our two mlb teams okay. we also have the chicago blackhawks which is an ice hockey team yep. um yeah so um things that aren't That aren't great. It's not great. Not great. It's It's 2019. How is this still a thing? Hollywood whitewashing isn't anything new. I mean, have you seen La La Land? I guess that was just really white, not necessarily whitewashed. Unlike the movie Aloha, when Emma Stone's character was a whitewashed version of someone who was supposed to be a quarter Chinese and a quarter Hawaiian. Whitewashing happens all the time, including with actors playing native peoples. Take this rebooted Army Hammer movie when he and his sidekick made a mockery of more than just himself, but an opportunity for a native actor.
1: Um, it was Johnny Depp in which film And it was um, he was playing Tonto in which film? in, um, I don't remember who Army Hammer was playing, but the movie was named after his character. Yes, The right? Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. There you go. And last but
0: not least, it's 2019. How is this still a thing? Co-opted images of Native Americans appear almost everywhere, so it's no surprise that transportation is an arena heavily laden with references and images related to Native peoples. From the Dodge Dakota to the Jeep Grand Cherokee, this field is awash. But only this mode of passenger transportation is actually has a native person as its logo and it's
1: not a car
0: I would say more but it would very much so give it away
1: um is it a motorcycle it is is it a Harley Davidson it's not
0: it's a competitor of Harley it's Indian motorcycle oh
1: yeah which is actually the
0: the name and it does use a native person as its logo okay it's 2019 how is this still a thing how is this still
1: a thing This has been Trail Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast, and we're here to remind you to hike early and hike often and that adventure is always out there. Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. For more images from this episode, follow our Instagram at Gaze at the National Parks. To contact us, email us at gaze at the National Parks at gmail.com and to find out more about the National Museum of the American Indian and all of the other national parks spoken about on this podcast, visit our website at gaze at the All
0: original artwork on Instagram and on our website is by Michael Ryan. All original
1: music was written by Dave Seaman and performed by Dave Seaman, Mariella Klinger and Sean Sclios. Our music producer was Skylar Fordgang.
0: We would also like to acknowledge while well visiting the Museum of the American Indian that we were on the traditional lands of the Nacotchtank or Anacostan and Piscataway peoples. Stay tuned for our next trail mix episodes where we explore the national monuments of the National Mall.